Well, it is a pleasure to be with you, whether in person, whether online, whether in the classic venue, on the Moon Campus, wherever this is finding you, it is so good to be together. I want to give you one last update about Give Joy. I know that the project was actually over like a month ago, but uh, it bears a little bit of an update. Uh, When we finished up the project, our goal had been about $65,000 because that would provide 10 wells in India, clean water wells, that's what Give Joy is all about, and also the living water of the gospel that would go along with that. And we were just slightly, just a little bit short of that 65, and just mentioned that, and, and all of a sudden people just jumped in and they picked up the, the rest of that and went beyond. So instead of hitting the 65 at that time, we hit about 70. And uh, of course, that got us really close to yet another well, and people continued to think, well, we could just go a little bit further. And so I just want to report to you that instead of hitting the 65,000, as of last weekend, we're at 86,000. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, go ahead. That is so wonderful. I'm so thankful to the people of Pathway, to you, to your generosity, and uh, people in India are going to be tremendously blessed because of the way that you have responded to that. And I just want to say thanks. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks because of the generosity of the people of Pathway. We thank you for your goodness in inspiring us and moving us and challenging us in working in us and through us for the sake of people that we've never met and probably never will on this side of glory, but there are churches that are being planted in these locations, and, and we hope one day to be able to meet some of those who are the recipients of this grace that is being extended. Lord, thank you for uh, the kindness and the compassion of Pathway and what you have done in us and through us. We thank you for it. We pray now that you would work in us and toward the end of working through us as we think about some very important topics as we look into your Word. Open our minds and our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, to what lengths would you go to find a hidden treasure? Now, I realize as I asked that, if I were asked that, my first question would be, well, how much is the treasure worth, right? Let's decide if it's worth our effort, because I can pretty much tell you that, that if the treasure was, you know, let's say a fruitcake and a John Western bobblehead, I'm not going after it. I'm just telling you that right now, right? But what if I told you, okay, it's $2 million. Now I'm looking for where I can get a metal detector, right? Because I want to join in on this. Well, for many, many people, this was not just a hypothetical question or exercise. Because in 2010, there was an art collector. His name is Forrest Fenn. And he actually buried a treasure. And he left this cryptic map, as it were, treasure map, through a poem. And it was called The Thrill of the Chase. And if people would read this poem, it would give them clues as to where this treasure was buried. And it ended up being in the Rocky Mountains. And that's where he said that that's where the, the poem says it's going to be found. And that the estimated value was about $2 million dollars. And that inspired a lot of people to go after this hidden treasure. In fact, it's estimated that 350,000 people have been looking in the Rocky Mountains for this treasure. Five people 
have died looking for this treasure. That's how much this has, has moved people. In fact, the authorities tried to get Forrest Fenn to call off the search, but he refused to do so. Now, if this excites you and you're like ready to drive out to Colorado or out to the Rocky Mountains to find it, you can cool your jets because not long ago it was found. And it was back in the news because the guy who found it was actually revealed, so now we know who it was. It was this medical student from Michigan, and uh, his name is Jack Stoof. He found it, and uh, this is what he found. It was a 13th century chest that was filled with coins and diamonds and rubies and gold nuggets and other things as well. He found his treasure. Now, if that really interests you, you might be interested to know that there are billions and billions of more in hidden treasure that's out there in our world today. Some of it has been hidden intentionally, some of it unintentionally. But lots of riches that are out there to be discovered, lots of hidden treasure that people are going after. And maybe you are one of those who gets inspired to do that. Well, i got to tell you this. I'm inspired to go after and to discover some hidden treasure with you right now, today. And to open up God's Word, we can discover some hidden treasure, some things that aren't necessarily immediately obvious in fact, some things that can be very difficult to actually come to understand, but that doesn't mean that they're, they're veiled for us. It doesn't mean that they can't be found. It just means that for many, it hasn't yet been found. So, this is what we're going to do. We're going to search for some hidden treasure together here today. Now, you don't need to go to the Rocky Mountains to find this treasure. You don't need to search the bottom of the ocean. You don't need a metal detector, but you do need a Bible because that's where we actually find this treasure spoken of and where we're going to be searching for it today. And it's vitally important that we would because if we don't find the treasure that is spoken of in the passage that we're going to be looking at, we're going to leave ourselves in a spot where our spiritual life is sort of going to be in neutral, where we're going to be in a place where we're sort of spinning our wheels, where we would like to and believe that we should be further along that we are, than we are, but we're just kind of stuck. It's kind of lackluster. And you might find yourself here today listening in and thinking, you know what, that kind of describes me. Well, it could be that some of the treasure that could be taken and applied to your life is hidden for you right now, at least in your experience. Because if we can find this treasure, where that is going to take us is to a place where we can have confidence about where we are, about the present experience we have with Christ, and what the future experience with Christ is going to be, and it'll set us on a path to experience all of what that treasure holds for us. So that's what we're going to be thinking about today. We're going to be taking a look for this hidden treasure of God. Now, even as we begin this journey, I think it's very important to point out that it's not a hidden treasure because God is hiding it from us. The fact is that God very much desires that we would find it, so much so, in fact, that He's given us a treasure map, and that treasure map was written for us, not by Forrest Fenn, but by the Apostle Paul. And we find it in the passage of Scripture that we come to in our ongoing studies. This passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is our treasure map. 
here in these verses that we're going to take a look at. And as we open them up, I believe that there are some things that we're going to learn and can take and apply that is going to perhaps open up some new treasure for us that maybe we've never really come to understand or at least applied in our lives along the way. So that's what we're going to be doing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, is where we're going to be. This is where we've come in our ongoing trek through this letter that we are calling Strength in Weakness. Strength in weakness is what this is all about. Now, there are a few clues that we're going to consider in this map, and the first is that you can find the hidden treasure of God through plain truth. That's number one, through plain truth. In Corinth, the church was facing a bit of a crisis because the treasure of truth was being hidden, and that's because there were some false teachers who have come on the scene at this point. Some false teachers who would come along, and they are, they are hiding the truth because they're twisting it and they're turning it. And in the clarity of the gospel that Paul had preached to them, they are trying to twist around for their own purposes, for their own benefit, to enrich themselves. They are making a message that serves them, not one that serves Christ. And so Paul gets wind of this, and he comes into town, and not only are they criticizing the truth that Paul preached that actually launched the church, but they're criticizing Paul as well because if they can discredit Paul, then they can easily discredit the message, and then their message is the one that people hopefully are going to follow after, at least in their mind. And so what we have with, here with the, as this passage begins is Paul trying to set the record straight, in part defending the truth and in part defending himself here. So let's take a look at it. Verse 1 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians says this, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Verse 2, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, the plain truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. While others are distorting or, or hiding the truth or the treasure of God's truth, Paul said that he's working to speak it very plainly. And that's all that really needs to be done because it is God's truth. And as God's truth is spoken plainly, the illumination of the Holy Spirit works together with the truth of God so that the conscience of those who are hearing the truth are pricked and they are forced essentially through God's Spirit to consider what this truth really is all about. And that's all Paul is trying to do. He's just saying, here's the plain truth. I'm not going to try to twist it. I'm not going to try to manipulate you or it in any way. This is just what it is, and I'm going to let the Word of God do the rest because he's not trying to communicate his truth. He's trying to communicate the truth of the Word of God. And as it goes out plainly, God works and touches that truth so that others might respond. Unfortunately, not everyone was bringing plain truth. The false teachers were the ones who were using the tactics that are spoken of in verse 2. Did you notice? It talks about the secret and shameful ways, the deception and the distortion. That's what they were doing. But they weren't the only ones. It talks more about hidden treasure here in verse 3. Look at this. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, might we say hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, what it's saying there is that we have an active adversary who is working to hide the grace and the mercy of God from those. 
And our culture participates in that. As our culture sort of embraces that sort of message, that anti-God message, that anti-mercy, anti-grace message, that that would come from God, they participate in that. And that's why it's so important that we would be ones who would be speaking plain truth to those who are around us so that there might be a witness that provides Christ's truth that can open up the doors and can unlock the doors that otherwise would be closed to hide God's truth from others. But unfortunately, I think that we oftentimes shrink back from doing so because we recognize that our message is a minority opinion in the world that we live in. And so we shrink back because we're afraid maybe that we'll be ridiculed or, or that it's not going to be received by the people who hear it. And so we sort of shrink back because we know it's not what they ultimately believe themselves. And so we get timid about the whole thing, which is exactly the opposite of what we ought to do. See, we don't need to concern ourselves with whether or not they believe it, whether or not they receive it. That's God's job, our job, Paul's job is to just make the truth plain, because God will do the rest, and it will take that which is hidden from view. You know some people who, whose minds are hidden to the truths of God, or the truths are hidden from them because of the things that they believe, the things that they have accepted, the things that they have received. Well, this opens it up, but we have a responsibility. Plain truth can unearth hidden treasure no doubt about it. That's what he's talking about here. It's the power of speaking the truth in Christ. Verse 5 goes on, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. What he's saying, if we preach ourselves or our own interests, we're making the gospel a hidden treasure. If we choose to sort of twist it, if we choose to take it and and turn it into what we want it to be, we're hiding it because it's not the plain truth of God. It's some way that we have perverted it, and people are going to be lost as a result. He is saying Christ is coming to demonstrate. Paul is preaching that the light of Christ is that which will illuminate. That's what we need to reveal. We need to be sure that we're all about celebrating what He's called us to do, who He's called us to be, not who we've decided that we're going to try to to twist it to become, to twist some Scriptures so that we can justify our lifestyle or whatever's been going on. We just need to make it plain, he says. And where we've failed to do so, we've been participants in hiding the treasure of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's love. And you don't want to be a participant in hiding the treasures of God. So, it's a clear word here for all of us that Paul gives us. And as he goes on, there's, there's more to finding the hidden treasure of God. It comes through plain truth. And also, secondly, it comes through overcoming power overcoming power. This is such an encouraging point Paul makes here that's not only central to this passage, this is actually central to helping us understand really the the totality of this letter that he is writing here. Let's take a look at this. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, if anyone would have heard Paul's rebuttal of the criticism that people were leveling against him and decided, well, that's just Paul because he's full of himself. He's just trying to promote himself in his own purpose. He's, He's trying to say that he's superior 
If anybody would have come to that sort of conclusion, then verse 7 settles that when he likens himself to a clay pot. Paul says, I'm a clay pot. Any archaeological dig from that time and certainly that place would have revealed all sorts of clay pots. Maybe you've seen some of those on display. Maybe you've even been to places where you have actually seen them physically. Just clay pots. There were clay pots after… Why? Because they were cheap. Because they were easy to come by, easy to make. And so, you find them all throughout archaeological digs. They were cheap. They were just simple little things, just like they are today. As it turns out, just talk amongst yourselves. I'll be back in a minute. I brought my own clay pot right here because it's not that big of a deal. This did not cost me hardly anything, like a dollar this cost me. It's cheap. It's no different than it was in Paul's day. What Paul is saying is, is I'm the clay pot. And because it's so inexpensive in those days, if, if they would have broken one, if someone would have gotten lost, it was no big deal. And it's the same thing for us today. I mean, if, if this were somehow to just sort of slip out of my hands, you're not bothered. Maybe you're bothered by the fact that I just did that, but you're not bothered by what's going on with the, with the poor little pot, right? Paul says, that's me. I'm just the pot. That's not what, it, what, what is important. He says, what is important is what fills the pot. And in those days, they put all kinds of things in those pots. They'd carry water in the pot. They would carry oil for cooking in the pot. They'd carry wine in pots like that. They would carry coins. They would carry other valuables. They would carry family possessions, all kinds of different things. The value wasn't in the pot. The value was what was contained within the pot. That's the point that he ultimately wants to make here. He says, I'm not making this about me. You're saying that I'm trying to build myself up. I'm, not, I'm just the pot, he's saying. Unfortunately, we're prone to celebrate the pot. We celebrate our own abilities. We work on ourselves. We say that, well, the things that I'm going to be about are about me. And so we actually take a dollar store pot and we put it up on the shelf and we celebrate it. And we paint it and we adorn it and we, we spend all the time on the externals while we're not bothering to really be connected to what's inside. Paul says it's what's inside that matters, and he's suggesting that we take and that we pour out Christ who fills us so that His power, so that He might be the thing that is seen, the thing that is celebrated. Paul says, that's what I'm doing. I am just. How did he say it? But we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure sometimes we hide inside the pot because we're celebrating the pot. Now, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And that's not just a good thing to do. It's the very thing that offers us victory in the midst of the most challenging and difficult circumstances that might come our way. Paul points that out as it continues. Verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Those are a couple of my favorite verses in all of 
the Bible. See, Paul knew what it was to be, I put some of this down here, Paul knew what it was to be hard-pressed in life, to be perplexed, to be persecuted, to be knocked down. That was his life. We've studied it before. That was his ministry. He's shipwrecked. He's, he's beaten. He's oppressed. All of these things are going on in Paul's life. But what is Paul's testimony in the midst of hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and knocked down? He says, but even though these things are all true, even though my life, my ministry is basically characterized by this, but I'm not crushed, hard-pressed, but not crushed, perplexed, but I'm not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned. I am knocked down, but not destroyed. That's a marvelous testimony that Paul is giving about what his life is in the midst of all of the challenge. This is what his experience is. And this is where this comes back to the whole of what we're talking about in this letter. See, these things here we could characterize as being weakness, right? These are things that are working against Paul. This is how he is feeling the weakness of self and the weakness of circumstance and the weakness of his condition. But this isn't where he lives. This is where he lives. He lives in strength. He's finding his strength in weakness. This is why he is able to say later, and we'll see it when we study later on in this, in this letter, but it's, it's a dynamic word that he has to say there. We'll look at it in depth there. But it applies here as well. It is this, when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what Paul is able to say. When I am persecuted and knocked down, that's when I'm strong. And you see, this is a message that is for us too. It's not just the, the testimony of Paul. This is something that speaks into our life, our circumstances as well. Let's go back to that little chart here. Let's kind of clear it off and maybe make it more for ourselves. For instance, we might be, you might find yourself today discouraged or maybe diseased or weary or attacked. These might be the things. As you say, well, what's going on in my life? How would I describe what's going on for me? It might be something, you might have something else. But even in the midst of this, we can take and we can actually appropriate for ourselves the very thing, the very promises that, that Paul was living in are available to us as well. They can be our strength, that we're not crushed, we're not in despair, we're not abandoned, we're not destroyed, whatever these things are. Now, what I'd like for you to do is to ask yourself, in fact, you might even want to make out your own little chart now or later on, what would you put over here on, in, in the column of weakness? What are the challenges of life for you? What are the things that are going on that are, are causing you worry and fear and anxiety and stress? What are those things? Well, here's the thing. We might take off those. There is something that God is providing for you because there is never anything in our weakness that doesn't have the strength of God as an answer. There's nothing that you're going through that does not have a strength of God provided for you. I don't know exactly what it is to meet whatever your weakness might happen to be, but the promise of God is that it's there. It might feel like a hidden treasure to you because you haven't yet come to experience how this circumstance might be overcome, but that can be overcome through the overcoming power of God. God. Where does it come from? From God's power. Look at how he says it here in verse 10. 
We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, though that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that His life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. As believers in Jesus, we are beneficiaries of the death of Christ. We didn't participate in, in the way that He did. We should have, but we didn't have to. But we're beneficiaries of what He did. Of course, He didn't stay in the grave. He rose victoriously to life. And we are also beneficiaries of that life, of that victory. It is ours. It's the same power that gives us strength in weakness. The power that caused Christ to rise in victory over the grave is the same power that can be applied as our strength to meet our weakness. That is such good news. That is so amazing. It's not just Paul who benefits. That's God's promise for us. Some of us have been living with a treasure that is offered to us, hidden away, because we haven't opened ourselves up to the victory of Christ. And so, I would challenge you and encourage you to ask yourself, what are those things that I might call weakness, and how is God providing for me in the midst of it all through His overcoming power? So, we can find the hidden treasures of God through His overcoming power, through, through plain truth, it unearths it. Then one more area, and that is invisible faith. Not invisible faith, but invisible faith, all right? Don't get that wrong. That's a totally different meaning, all right? As Paul continues, he quotes from Psalm 116 here. You can find it in our verse 13 of chapter 4. Here's what he writes. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to Himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. The reason that Paul is quoting from the psalmist is because he identifies with him. If you were to go, great extra credit reading, go and read Psalm 116 that this is a quote from, you'll find that the psalmist is struggling significantly. He's so significantly, in fact, that he believes that his death is coming. He believes that that is what his lot is sooner rather than later. And Paul identifies with that. You might remember earlier on in this letter that Paul talked about how he was despairing of life itself, which means that he thought that he was going to die. He wasn't going to make it. But just like the psalmist, Paul doesn't give up. There wasn't much he could do, so he does one of the only things available to him, like the psalmist. He cries out to God for God to meet him in his circumstance. Paul even borrows some of the psalmist's words. They are words of belief. I believed, therefore I have spoken. That's from Psalm 116. Paul says, that speaks for me as well. I believed, therefore I have spoken. So, what is it that the psalmist and Paul both believe? Well, they believe that God is able to meet them in their distress and provide for their every need. They don't know for sure how God is going to meet them, but they do know if it is in God's purpose that whatever He decides, however He leads, that's good enough for me. 
It's faith. Choosing to walk in faith, believing that God will care for them. One of the real beauties of the treasures that God is doing for us is what they can provide for us in the midst of our deepest darkness and our deepest despair. What did Paul say? When I am weak, then I am strong. How many of us, when I am weak, oh, am I weak? It saps my energy. I'm depressed. I mope around. I'm discouraged. Now, what Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. What does Paul do with his visible faith? He makes it more visible by proclaiming it and living it out loud before other people. Again, Psalm 116, I believed, therefore I have kept quiet. I've kept to myself. Because who knows what people are going to think of me if I say it. So he says, I believed, therefore I have spoken. And that accomplishes a couple of things when it comes to the hidden treasure of God. One is that it reveals it to others. When Paul speaks, it reveals it to others. When Paul held to the truth and continued to praise God in the midst of what everybody knew was a deadly and devastating circumstance for him, it communicates very powerfully that these aren't just words, that Paul is actually living this out because this is real, and that just as God meets him in the midst of his weakness, that he will meet others as well. That's part of it. A visible faith opens up the hidden treasures of God to others, but here's the thing. It also opens it up to you. When you're choosing to be visible with your faith, it also causes your faith to grow. It meets you in the midst of your need as well. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Are there ever times when you wonder, why isn't my faith more robust than what it is? Why do I just seem to kind of plot around? Why do I seem to keep getting tripped up by the same things over and over again? Well, could it be that you're investing too little to get significant returns? You're putting too little into the game in, able to, in order to really get something back out. This is where we often get trapped. We approach faith like I approach ice skating. What's that mean? Well, I'm not a very good skater. Where I was growing up, they didn't have hockey in school, and there weren't any hockey clubs around, and so people basically, none of my friends, we just, we just didn't go skating. On top of that, I played basketball, and the coach was like, none of you will go skating because he was afraid we might break something, and so we didn't. And as a result, I never really learned to skate very well at all, which makes it one of my children's favorite activities to suggest as a family activity so they can laugh at me. I never suggested as a family activity because I like all of my bones intact. And so I don't suggest it at all. And because I never really feel like skating, I don't go skating. And because I don't go skating, I never get any better at skating. What should I do? Well, at this point of life, (laughs) probably continue on my quest to not skate so that I keep all of those bones still intact. But if my goal was to improve my ability, I would have to stop waiting for the desire to kick in and put on the skates and get out onto the ice. And as the ability increased, if it ever did, the desire would increase along with it. Now, why share that story? 
because it relates to our spiritual walk as well. See, there may be times when your desire to engage in the things of God, in the things that bring growth, where it's not very strong. So we sit on the spiritual sidelines and we sort of wait for the desire to kick in. But it doesn't. Have you noticed? It doesn't kick in. And you sort of remain stagnant out on the sidelines. And some of you are there right now. Sure, you're here at this point, but it's not really something that's generating a whole lot more for you. As you look at what your activities are, spiritually speaking, throughout the course of the week, you're just sort of marking time, and what you're doing instead is pursuing the things that you do have an interest in, where you do have a desire, and you could probably name what those are. But then some crisis comes along, and we wonder why we're not further along in our faith to be able to handle it better than what we're able to do. Well, we have the answer. We haven't done what is needed to promote the growth that is lacking. Sounding familiar? What we need to do is make the intentional choice to worship and grow and serve, to get into the game. Whether there is a desire to do so or not. You simply understand it's what you're called to do. It's the step that you really ought to take. And because we understand that in our mind, we just jump in and we take the step. And what happens then is it starts to feed off itself. It's when we start to taste the goodness of God because we've jumped into it when we've learned a nugget about God because we've jumped into it, that it starts to whet our appetite for more and more and more. But if you're just sitting on the sidelines, it's not going to happen. But as you choose to express and go visible with your faith, it's something that will start to jump to, spring to life, and then it's going to feed on itself. There's so many treasures of God that are just waiting to be discovered, unearthed, hidden treasures of God that are to be found, and then cashed in. That's what God desires for us. And the beauty is that when you dig up one treasure, you're going to come to realize that there's more treasure there. It's not like we're looking for one treasure and, oh, we found all the treasure of God. Sometimes we think that because it's like, well, I came to faith, I I prayed to receive Jesus, and so I've received all the treasure of God. No, you haven't. You've received a treasure of God, And then life, the process of sanctification is the process of opening new doors, of discovering more treasures that have previously been hidden to you. And the beautiful thing is that when you discover a treasure, it unlocks a new one. See, every time that you find a treasure, when you find some truth contained with that, in that treasure chest, as it were, is a map to another treasure. And we can just continue to press on and press forward and find more and more of who God is. You can never exhaust the treasure of God. Never. You'll never get to the place where you say, well, I found it all. There's always going to be something that is still hidden that we have yet to come and open up. But Paul helps us to understand how we can do so. So don't ever give up in the hunt because God is longing to pour out more treasure into your lap. And He helps us to understand some of how to get there by just being plain with the truth as we speak it, 
as we receive it, just honestly, as we read something, as we hear something in a sermon, that we would just open ourselves up to the truth of what it's saying rather than trying to find a way to dismiss it so that we might be able to justify the direction that we're going. Leaning into also the overpowering power, the overwhelming power of God, and also just living out a visible faith, taking the steps, whether you feel like it or whether you don't, because God's going to meet you there And He's going to honor that step of faith. And we're going to discover together some of the treasures that have been hidden to us, not because God's been hiding them, but because we haven't chosen to search for them. And we'll find ourselves soaring toward the purpose and meaning and fulfillment that God has in mind and in store for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for the abundant riches that You have for us to experience. Forgive us for the times when we've chosen to twist Your Word and every time we do, slamming the door to hide the treasure that You desire us to experience. Lord, help, in, help us to open up our lives, our minds, our hearts to what you have in store. Thank you that as we pursue you, you reveal yourself to us. You open up your treasure chest so that we might reach in and possess all of what is there, experiencing the fullness of all that you have in store, soaring in the riches of your grace and your mercy. Lord, you know where each of us are. I just pray that we would humble ourselves to the point where we would accept your plain truth where we would be the ones who would come under the conviction of the Spirit, that our conscience would be pricked with the plain truth. And Lord, I believe that for most of us that's already happened. It's just a matter of choosing to walk the path that you're opening before us. So Lord, reveal your treasure to us. Give us the desire the passion to pursue it, that we might live more and more in your desire for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.